how many of you, I, I guess, don't raise your hand because you may not want to out yourself at this point, but as you're going into this year, your heart is a little bit troubled, shall we say. You got a little bit of anxiety about something like Randy was talking about earlier this morning. There, there's some pandemic stuff still happening. There's some frustrating things still happening. There's political stuff still happening. Not to mention the fact that there's regular health things still happening, rather regular relationship stuff. Jobs are still jobs. School is still school. Work is still painful. All those kind of things. You may be going into 2022 and your heart is a little unsettled, a little not at rest. Well, this morning, I want us to look at a passage that will hopefully give us hope in that. So go ahead and open your Bibles up to John chapter 14. Now, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew there in front of you. That's the black book uh, that's there with the red ones. The Pew Bible there uh, is also yours for the taking if you need it. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to take that one with you as a gift from us to you. And you can look like a champ um, as you're turning over in the Pew Bible. It's on page 957, okay? So you can just go straight to it, and you don't even have to worry about it. If you were with us last fall, you know that we started a series through the Gospel of John. And we've made it all the way up through John chapter 8. And we're starting back into that series this morning. But we're going to jump ahead a little bit because I wanted to kind of bridge what we've been talking about with what we're going to be talking about. So next week, we're going to go back in time a little bit and pick up John chapter 9. And we'll go through that. That should take us all the way basically until about May just so you know, so you can be planning out. I know all of you sit around all week and think, gee, I wonder what Pastor Sean is going to preach this Sunday. I know it's a topic of conversation around the dinner table, so there you go. You know it's going to be pretty much the Gospel of John from now until the first part of May, okay? As we're diving here in chapter 14, though, I wanted us to kind of do this, like I said, as a bridge to kind of tie in what we talked about last week with what we talk about this week. By the way, I want to just go ahead and tell you, We've said before in our church family, one of our statements around here is we need to be fluid, not flexible. Flexible things, you bend them far enough and eventually they'll break. Fluid things conform to whatever you put them in. I want to just say and give a shout out to everybody last week who was so fluid to work and play in different places. We had folks out with illness. I was out and we did the pre-recorded message that I'd come in and done. We had all kinds of folks stepping up in big ways to serve in areas they don't usually. So thank you guys for being fluid and adjusting and just rolling with it. But last week, if you were with us or if you joined us online, you noticed that we were talking about our unusual king and we were talking about his return. When we talked about Jesus' return last week, we focused kind of mainly on the fact of his return and the fact that he was coming back and what kind of people we should live and be while we're waiting for him to come back. This week, as we're diving back in the Gospel of John, what I want us to do is take some time to to look a little bit more at what he has told us about his return. In fact, we're kind of answering one of the aspects of the question, what's Jesus even doing while we're here waiting on earth, right? Well, you know, Jesus has gone back up to heaven. We know that he went through, he did his earthly ministry, he died on the cross, he was buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave. About 40 days later, he ascended to go back into heaven. So what on earth is going on now? What's Jesus doing while he's in heaven? Well, there's a lot of answers to that question, but here we're going to see one for us this morning. And as we see one answer to what Jesus is doing while he's in heaven right now, my hope and my prayer is that God will use his word to help you not to be troubled as you're going into the rest of this year, okay? 
So read with me here in John chapter 14. This may be a familiar passage to you. Maybe the first time you've ever heard it. Either way, I want you to hear it with fresh ears. John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, January has already been difficult for folks. I know as we look across a room this size and even some who are still at home watching online, there's a lot of things that we're concerned about today. There's a lot of fear. There's frustration. There's disappointment. And we may even have folks who are on the verge of giving up. God, would you, through your grace, through your power, through your strength, through your holiness, through your majesty, through your word today, would you help our hearts not to be troubled? Help us to take these truths to heart, to trust you, to honor you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we're looking at this, the first thing that strikes you off the bat may be what seems like unhelpful advice. First thing that Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 1 is, hey, don't let your trouble. Oh, great, that fixes it, right? If you've ever talked to somebody who's depressed, you know, and, and they're talking to somebody who's not as aware of what depression looks like, they'll sit there and say, well, you should just stop being sad all the time. Oh, right, well, that fixes it. Or you're anxious? Oh, well, just don't worry about stuff so much. If only it were that simple, right? So is that what Jesus is doing? Is he just giving us this, this missive? Oh, eh, don't be anxious about it. Don't let your heart be troubled. Not at all. What Jesus is doing is as he gives us that statement, he's giving us at least four items that we're going to make a note of this morning that give us reasons why our heart can have lasting peace and be settled even in the midst of the craziness of what's going on. Now, let's put this in context of what's actually happening as Jesus is uttering these words. This is Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. This is the last meal that Jesus will celebrate with his followers before he goes to the cross. He's already in chapter 13 that he's going to leave, and he's also just finished. The last words that are recorded by John before he says this is, oh yeah, by the way, Peter, you're the guy who's kind of in charge of the disciples, you're going to deny me three times before a rooster crows this morning. Good luck. Now, those things would be incredibly unsettling, right? They've been following Jesus. They've been walking around. That He's the one that is going to be in charge of everything. And then now all of a sudden he's saying, I'm leaving, and the second in command is going to abandon me before the night's over. Good luck. So here's what he says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't worry about it. <coughs> excuse me. I'm going to keep doing that, so I'm going to stop saying excuse me, and we're just going to keep rolling. Okay? We clear on that? Good? Okay. <clears throat> As we're resuming our study into this, though, Jesus is entering into this incredibly difficult situation. The next few days for the disciples are going to be unimaginable. They're going to be at risk of being arrested themselves. They're going to watch the man that they have staked all of their claim and all of their hope on be arrested and brutally executed in a mock trial that was a miscarriage of justice. All of a sudden, they're going to find themselves completely alone, disillusioned, 
in fear of their own lives. And yet Jesus has the audacity to say, don't let your heart be troubled. Well, how can he back that up? How can that not be just an insensitive, audacious kind of statement? Well, it can be that when it's coming from the God who says the things that he says right after that. The first thing he says is, for you and I to allow our hearts not to be troubled by what's going on around us, to be able to be peaceful, to be able to be steadfast, to be able to be strong in the midst of everything that takes place, the first thing that we see is that we can trust Jesus. We can trust Jesus. Now, that may sound like a Sunday school kind of answer, but I want to remind you again of what we're seeing here. He says there, don't let your heart be troubled. No, and why? Because believe in God, believe also in me. All the way through the Gospel of John, Jesus has been showing that he is God in the flesh. They've been trusting in God the Father, and now he's revealing himself as God the Son, right? He's showing that, that God the Father exists. He is equal with the Father. All of these beautiful truths that we've seen throughout here. So he's saying, just like you have believed in God, believe that I am God. Believe in me. Now, this goes back to what John's been communicating to us for the whole book. If you remember, we said that the the key verse behind why John wrote this book is John chapter 20, verse 31. He said, these things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These things are written. The whole reason he wrote the gospel of John was so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that as you see that he's the Messiah, the one sent by God, the unusual king we talked about all through December, that once you realize that, that you can believe in him and in believing you can have life in his name. Now remember, when the Bible talks about believing, it's not talking about knowing stuff up here, okay? There are a whole lot of people who have heard the stories about Jesus. They may have been to church or vacation Bible school when they were little. They may have come every single Sunday, but there's never been a time where they've actually transferred their trust into putting it into Jesus and who he is and what he's done, okay? The Bible says for us to be right with God, we must believe in the Son of God, in Jesus, in his work, in his person, in his ministry, okay? So what are we believing in? Well, we've already spent several weeks in John, so let's talk about just what we've seen about who Jesus is from the Gospel of John, okay? We've seen in chapter 1 that Jesus is God coming to earth and taking on human flesh. So we saw in chapter 1 that Jesus is God himself. He is co-equal with the Father. He existed eternally with the Father, and he is God himself, just like the Holy Spirit is God himself. We also find out that he's the Lamb of God in chapter 1. He's the perfect sacrifice who will take away the sin of the world. In chapter 2, we've seen that Jesus is the one who's bringing the kingdom of God and all of the joy that comes with it. In chapter 3, just like uh, Randy read for us this morning, we're reminded that Jesus is the gift that God has given to the world to show his deep love for us. In chapter 4, we find that Jesus is the one who isn't afraid to talk with those the world ignores. Instead, he's willing that everyone could know how to be right with God. He's teaching us that he's the sole satisfaction for the thirst of our own hearts. He's the only one we can do for lasting satisfaction. Then in chapter 5, we find that he can heal the sick, both physically and spiritually. Chapter 6, we see that Jesus is controlling nature as he feeds over 5,000 people with some fish and some bread. And then he follows that up by walking on water that night in the middle of a storm. In chapter 7, we're reminded that he's the one who gives the water that our souls are desperately thirsting for. 
In chapter 8, we see that he's extending grace to somebody who deserved to die in her sins. He's the light of the world in chapter 8. And as we saw the last time we talked about the gospel of John, those who remain in his word will be set free to live like he's created us to live. Now, the things we talked about in a nutshell, what we looked at last fall about the gospel of John, that's Jesus is. So Jesus is saying, in light of everything you have seen, in light of everything that you have heard, in light of everything that you've done and that you've seen me do, believe in me. Trust me. People sometimes talk about Christianity as if it's a blind leap of faith, okay? The, the documentaries on Alex Hunold, the guy that free solo climbed El Capitan in Yosemite, Okay? All right, if you've watched the documentary, you may understand something. If you saw the news article at first, it sounds like sane feet, and it is. However, one of the things that you notice, free solo climbing, by the way, means completely unaided, no ropes, no nothing, just you and a solid rock face sticking your hand in the cracks and trying not to die, okay? It's an incredible documentary on Disney that talks all about it. Here's the thing that a lot of folks don't realize, though. Yes, he did free solo climb El Capitan. But you know what he did for months and months leading up to that? With ropes, he would go out and he would do a section at a time. He had coaches who would show him the best routes and then he would practice it over and over again to try to make sure that there was no room for error so that when he got up there and he's hundreds of feet off the ground, wedging his hand and feet in rocks, trying not to die, he would survive. There is one particular section that's almost impossible. They say the face is like glass, and he found his own route through it, but he had gone and he had tried it time and time and time and time again. It doesn't make it any less impressive, but know that he'd seen it before, and so it wasn't a blind leap into the darkness. He knew what he was getting himself into. In a similar kind of way, yes, we don't have the privilege of having Jesus present physically in the room with us. I can't just sit down and open up a Coke Zero and hand it to Jesus and us have a conversation right now. I wish we could. That'd be so awesome. Okay, I like Coke Zero, all right, for the record. Haters, y'all go away. But Jesus is not here present with us. So is it a blind leap of faith for me to trust him? Not at all. Because, see, I have God's word describing for me who he is and what he's done I've got the Spirit of God living inside me, teaching me and shaping me and helping me understand. So so because of that, this is not a blind leap of faith. I'm trusting the God who's revealed himself throughout history. We watched a fair amount of TV in our house. So this is another Disney analogy. If you've seen, there's a new series that came out. I made reference to it a little bit in passing last week called Welcome to Earth. It features Will Smith in it. Um, I will warn you ahead of time. There's some unnecessary uses of coarse language in there. It doesn't need to be in there. It's just in there. So just heads up before you go into it. Not a lot. Happens occasionally. However, they take him to these incredibly remote areas and show him some of the most amazing things on earth. 3,000 feet under the sea and bioluminescent fish and algae and stuff that's growing and going crazy. Take him to the top of a volcano where there's this infrasound that you can't quite hear but you can feel. Or, or down into the depths of the Dolomites, they send a research team that actually recording sound hundreds of feet below the earth as the moon's gravity pulls on the mountains as everything rotates around each other. And, you know, at one point in the series, Will Smith, who's not a believer, says, man, I tell you what. Nature just reveals itself over and over again. I wanted to reach through my TV and grab him by the shoulders and shake him. He's so close. 
It's so astounding to see these things. But, but like they talk about there's this one jellyfish that, that when they shine a light on it, it actually has these iridescent little rainbow shimmers that go across it. And the, the marine biologist says, this doesn't happen down here because this kind of light doesn't exist at this depth. So these animals never see that. God put a jellyfish thousands of feet under the ocean for us not to find it for like 10,000 years. But one day we would have a sub that would go down there and be able to shine a light on it and say, look at the greatness of our God who could create something so majestic out of a squishy, gross little jellyfish thousands of feet under the sea. A God who, as the old hymn says, around us rings the music of the spheres. When the earth itself is groaning as the gravity pulls the the mountains, it's it's just mind-boggling. So when we talk about trusting Jesus, this is the God we're talking about. The God who creates, the God who sustains, the God who's a God of beauty, the God that Psalms tells us at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the God who says, trust me. Trust me. He's not being dismissive. He's not saying, oh, it's no big deal, get over it. Rather, he's saying, as you look at these things that seem so big, so scary, so frustrating, believe in God. Believe also in me. I've got this. Is that how you're facing this year? Or are you trying to figure out how you're going to make it work? Now, guys, listen, we have a responsibility to use wisdom, to exercise that, to do what God calls us to do, walk in obedience. But all of that is built on a foundation that trusts Jesus. God, you know what you're doing. I don't see it. I don't like it. I don't understand it. But you said, don't let my heart be troubled. I'm going to believe in you. Now, if that's all he'd said, that would be enough because of who God is and everything he's revealed, that right there would be enough for us to be able to say, you know what, I should not let my heart be troubled because I'm believing in him. But he goes even further. He uses an absolutely beautiful picture. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. The second truth that we're gonna hold on to that keeps our heart from being troubled in these days is that he is preparing a place for those who are his. Okay, get this. I love this passage. It is so beautiful. Verse two, in my father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Now, if you grew up like I did in church in the 90s, um, you've got a song that's running through your head right now, right? It's a big, big house, lots and lots. Okay, Some of, if, if, if you're not familiar with it, uh, Netflix has a, a musical on it called A Week Away, where they've updated a lot of the classic contemporary Christian songs that some of us grew up with, and it is the weirdest nostalgia trip you'll ever go down, okay? But there was a song, big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, big, big yard, we can play football, right? All that kind of stuff. The reality is Jesus is creating a place for us. Now stop and think about that for a second. I'm not real great at being a Christian a lot of days. There's a lot of days where I say things, I do things, I act in ways. I go for a long time without praying. I was convicted when I was reading through Psalms this morning. I I was reading through the first five chapters of Psalms as a part of my my reading plan that I'm doing this year. And and as I was reading through it, first off, that was what I was supposed to read last week, but I was sick, so I didn't. 
okay? So I didn't even read my Bible much last Sunday like I was supposed to, and I'm already behind on my reading plan, and it's only January the 9th, right? But at the same time, there's a God in heaven who loves me. Because as I read through those five chapters, it it talks all about God's concern for the righteous, how he pays attention to the ways of the righteous, all of these kind of things, how he's a shield and a protector and how I can lay down and sleep because I know that the Lord will keep me safe. What struck me this morning was how much God thinks about us and how little some days I think about him. You realize that that the God of the universe is in heaven right now getting a place ready for you? For you. Like, for you to live. Somewhere for you to dwell. Now, if you have an older translation, it may say mansions there. Um, The word mansions, back when that translation was done, didn't actually mean big, impressive house. It just meant a place to live. There's a picture here at work that's foreign to us a little bit that some scholars debate back and forth, but I think it's a, a beautiful picture of what God's doing here. He's using what we would discover as wedding language. See, in those days, here's what would happen. If, when I would get engaged to Samantha, I'd arrange things with her dad and we'd get things settled out. Then the plan was I would actually go away for about a year. And while I was gone, I would build a room onto my parents' house. While I was doing that, some say that that was the bridal chamber where they would spend their honeymoon. Basically, it was a honeymoon suite for the week of the wedding feast. Others have said that actually this room would be where the family would live. So I'd be going back for a year. She and I would be separate, and I'd be building a place for her. Now, that's what Jesus is doing for us. Listen, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If not, I would have told you, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Jesus is the groom who's going away to make things ready for his bride. The Bible, all throughout the New Testament, especially sometimes even in the Old Testament, but throughout the New Testament, he refers to the church, his people, as his bride. So what Jesus is saying is, guys, I'm getting ready to go away, but it's okay. It's just like a groom going and getting the bridal suite ready, going to get ready for his bride to come be with him. I'm going away and I'm preparing a place for you. Now, how long ago did Jesus make this promise? About 2,000 years, right? As you think back about the last 2,000 years, we talked about it last week, it seems like that's forever. It seems like we've been waiting, and he's not coming back, and there's frustration in that. Let's flip that around for a second. How many of you guys watch HGTV? Okay? I can give you all your must-have items and stay within your budget. 12-week timeline, right? How many of you have ever read the blog posts about what happens after the filming crew leaves and they find out that actually the work was really shoddy and the furniture was really cheap, but it looked really good on TV. It started falling apart as soon as they backed out the driveway, right? It's this cheap work. It's a rush job. Some of you guys remember when Extreme Home Makeover was in Blacksburg and they redid that that house there, there in Blacksburg that one year. All the neighbors complained because it was a work zone 24 hours a day. It was just this big fiasco. So here's the thing. If Chip and JoJo in 12 weeks can take your 1970s ranch and update it into the beach-style home you've always wanted right there in the heart of Waco, Texas, what can Jesus do with 2,000 years? Now, maybe this is a little too quaint, 
But we believe that the Bible says that God literally spoke the entire created universe into existence in six 24-hour days. Okay, that means literally everything. They've deployed this big telescope now that's supposed to get some really cool pictures. Once it's all fully deployed, it's open, it's ready to go. Whatever it takes a picture of, God made that in six days. Six days. How long has he been gone? 2,000 years? Now, I should have done the math to figure out exactly how many days that is, but I do know it's a lot more than six. What could God prepare in 2,000 years? What, what could this look like? Well, you know, the Bible gives us some glimpses into it. I'm pretty sure that the backsplash is going to be nicer than what Chip and JoJo are going to put in your house, right? This is a little bit of a longer passage, but I wanted to read it at the very end of everything. Once it's all finally settled, all the judgments are done, the final expression of heaven when it's reunited with earth, here's what we see. Revelation chapter 1. Let, let your imagination run for a minute. Like if you can picture stuff in your head, then just run with it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. How many of you guys have watched that moment? It's one of my favorite moments in any wedding ceremony, when the back doors open and he sees her for the very first time. It is a strong man who doesn't tear up just a little bit. In fact, actually, I think it's a sign of weakness if you're not willing to cry when you see your bride, right? Now, my loving bride told me, don't start when she saw me getting ready to cry. So, you know, because she knew she'd cry, she had a veil and the mascara, and it was going to be a big mess. <sighs> However, there is about a bride who is adorned for her husband. It's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. The place that Jesus has been preparing for us for 2,000 years is described that way. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. Gosh, isn't this gorgeous? Think about it. No more tears. No more cough. No more crying. No more pain. No more death. Period. Our hearts are troubled right now because those things are still here. But Jesus said, it's okay. I'm preparing a place for you where none of that exists. Where it's joy whether it's peace, where it's hope. Actually, don't have to hope because it's realized. Where there's love that you've never begun to imagine. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you.
How many of you have ever had somewhere you wanted to go? For us, it's been Fiji. Okay, there was an old joke. If you remember the Truman Show movie, he said, Fiji is the farthest you can go from here before you start coming back, right? Fiji is the it's never going to happen bucket list vacation destination for me. You'll hear it come up periodically. I don't ever anticipate that we'll actually get to go to Fiji. But I know it's out there, and it sure seems beautiful. It's almost kind of wrong, though, isn't it? Like, places like that exist, and I'll never get to see it. I'll never go there. That brings me no comfort because it's out there and I'm here where it's like nine degrees and icing, right? So great, Jesus is preparing a place for us. Wonderful, fantastic. It may as well be Bora Bora for all I care because it's on the other side of the world. It's in heaven. I'm never gonna get there. Well, that's the third thing we see. We can be at peace because, first off, we can trust Jesus. Just, just bar none, we can trust that he knows what he's doing. Second of all, he's going to prepare a place for us. But number three, Jesus is going to take us back there. Jesus is going to take us back there. Look at it again in the text. Verse 2, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that, you, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to come and I'm going to get you and I'm going to take you there. Listen, the God of the universe is telling you this. We talked about this some last week, but he's not going to leave his bride waiting at the altar forever. She's she's not going to be standing there without her groom. And in those days, by the way, it was a little bit of a different situation. You'd have the, the groom would be at his father's house where he'd made things ready for her. He would have this whole procession. And the entourage that was with him would set out from his father's house. The bride's family would have people stationed on rooftops along the way. When they saw the light of the torches of him coming, they'd look and yell to each other, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And the bride would make herself ready. She'd get all dolled up, she'd be ready. And this procession would come and he'd meet her at the gate of her father's house. And there he would take, him, take his bride back with him and they would get married and they would spend the next seven days in this incredible feast celebrating all that their marriage involved. There's no way that that groom wasn't coming back for his bride. He had gone, he'd prepared a place, he certainly was coming back. By the way, in the year that the husband was off making himself ready and getting that place ready for the two of them to live, the bride would be meeting with other older women, learning about renting a household, managing things, and all the responsibilities that she would have as a wife. So see, while our groom is gone, it's our job, like we talked about last week, to be living in holiness, to be living in righteousness, trying to honor him and be ready so that the moment he comes back, like we saw in 2 Peter 3 last week, that we're there without wrinkle or spot or blemish or any stain, that we're honoring him as best we can while we're here. This was never designed to be a permanent arrangement. The groom would come back. Now, again, there's lots of questions about exactly what this is gonna look like. Even when we agree on the exact timeline of things, there's still questions about how is this actually gonna look? Like, what's, is Jesus going to show up and, like, kind of zoom across the sky and everybody's going to see him? Is it going to be broadcast on TV and everybody's going to, like, how's the whole world going to know Jesus come back? I don't know. I don't know. Bible's not clear on it. But here's what it is clear on. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now. 
and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We don't even really have a whole lot of details on exactly what our existence is going to be like in heaven. We know more than we think we do. But at the same time, we know that we're going to be like him, period. We know that when Jesus comes back, in some way, whatever it looks like, however this takes place, we know that we're going to be like Jesus. So we strive to purify ourselves, to live good, holy lives while God's drawing us to himself. You see, our hearts don't have to be anxious and upset about the state of the world. We should be praying about what's going on. We should be seeking to fight for justice in whatever spheres God allows us to be in. But we should be working to make the world a better place because of the God that we serve. But all of this has to have this underpinning that says, you know what? I'm settled because I know that Jesus is going to come back. And he's coming back for me. And he's going to take me back with him. Here's the thing, though. In all of this, Jesus was only talking to his disciples or his followers when he made this promise. What we just read in 1 John said that we're children of God now. That tells us that not everybody is a child of God. The idea of the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man is actually not a biblical concept. It's true that God is the creator and every human being is created with inherent worth, value, and dignity because they're created in the image of God. But God is not universally the father of all in the way that he refers to it in Scripture. He's the father of those who are his. Well, am I his? How do I get there? Jesus actually anticipated that, didn't he? He said, you know the way to where I'm going. I love Thomas's response. It's just a legit actual question. Verse 5, Lord, Thomas said, we don't even know where you're going, okay? We don't know where you're going. And if we don't know where you're going, how on earth are we supposed to know the way to where you're going? Like, that just doesn't compute. What's Jesus' response? Well, it's one of the most crucial, pivotal statements in all the Bible. In fact, it actually brings us full circle to what we started talking about. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. At this point, the disciples didn't have a clear picture of what that would mean or what that would look like, but they were about to find out. The only way for you and I to be right with God, to be able to anticipate his coming with joy, to be a a part of the, the marriage celebration that's coming with the marriage supper of the Lamb that's described in Revelation, the only part of that that we can have is if we've surrendered our lives to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Okay? No one can come to the Father except through Jesus. That means I can't be a good person to earn my way back. I've used the illustration before, but let's say that this water bottle right here, I actually, I did get it out of our, our filtered water there in the, in the foyer. Let's say that that filter was able to remove 100% of anything you wouldn't want in your water. Okay? And before I took a big swig of it or before I offered it to you, I I walked over and grabbed an eyedropper full of rat poison and just dropped a a couple of drops in there. If you knew that, would you be willing to drink from this water bottle? No. Okay. If the answer is, well, maybe, then no. 
The answer should be no, okay? If you know that there's something wrong, even if it's just a little bit, this water is not drinkable anymore. Think about it. If I was making omelets, if I had a, about a dozen eggs, we were all coming over omelets, I, I scrambled them all up, and when I cracked that last egg and dropped it in the bowl, the thing was rotten, and all of a sudden the kitchen stunk up to high heaven. Now, I've ruined that entire mix, even though only one-twelfth of it was bad, right? The other 11 eggs were fine, but, but now I've ruined the whole thing because just a little bit of it went bad. In the same kind of way, if, if there's anything in our lives that doesn't measure up to who God is and what he's called us to do, we could write with him on our own. You could go to heaven if you were a good person. If you had perfectly kept the law of God from the moment you were, you were born, actually from the moment you were conceived, if you'd been perfectly born without sin, never sinned once, you could go to heaven based off your good works. The reality is nobody's done that. At some point, every single human being who develops to the point of having a conscience has reached the point where they say, I know there's a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do, and I'm choosing to do the wrong. Every single person has. So how do I get right with God? Because there was actually one who hadn't done that. There was one person who was born without the stain of sin and born without actual sin. That person was Jesus. He never sinned. He never messed up. He never did the wrong thing. He always did what he was supposed to do. But as he's sitting there telling them, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in a matter of hours, he would be arrested, accused of a crime, and falsely found guilty. Because of that, he would be put on a cross where he would die for my sin and he would die for your sin to take the punishment for what I've done wrong, to die in my place, and he was buried after he died for that. But three days later, he rose from the grave to show that he could overcome it, to show that he had defeated death itself, to show that he had taken our penalty and he had paid it down to the very last drop. So when Thomas said, we don't know where you're going, Jesus said, the destination's not really all that important. The reality is, the way to get there is me. The way to get there is believing in the Son. This brings us full circle. Jesus is the way to be right with God. Not by trying real hard, not by doing lots of good things, but instead surrendering, saying, God, I can't do the right thing. God, I'm not good enough. In and of myself, I can't save myself. I need you to take over. I need you to be in charge. I need you to give me your life. And surrendering to him, not in what you've done, but what Jesus has done already. And then, through his sacrifice on the cross, he gives you the gift of eternal life. You're now right with God through what he's done. And you can find peace in the most difficult of circumstances. Why? Because he said, don't let your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way that I'm going. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life. So church family, what's got you troubled this morning? 
What was the thing that when you came in today, you didn't want to tell anybody about? What's the thing that's weighing on you? Don't let your heart be troubled. Trust Jesus. Know that he's preparing a place. Know that he's coming back for you. And trust in the fact that he's the way back to God. Bow your head with me and close your eye for just a minute. I want to give you a chance to respond this morning. Is there something that you need to do differently today? So, Sean, I'm a mess right now. My nerves are shot. If you had any idea what was going on, I've been so anxious. I've been so depressed. I've been so upset. Guys, listen. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. So has there been that time in your life where you know you've transferred your trust from what Jesus has done? Or excuse me, transferred your trust from what you could do to to trusting in what Jesus has done of making him the Lord, the lead boss of your life? How often do you think about him? How often do you think about his return? Does it lead you to live in a way that you, wanna, you want to be doing this when Jesus comes back? You'd be okay if he came back because you wouldn't be ashamed of what you're doing? If not, is there something that you need to confess to God and say, God, I, I know that even though I've been saved, I know I've fallen short of your plan. I know I'm not doing what you've called me to do in this area, and I, I want to live a life that honors you in everything. If you got something that you need to do today where you want to you talk, you want to pray, I'm going to be down front. I'd love to talk with you about it. You don't need me, though. Where you are, would you just ask God to give you that peace to help you to be settled, to help you to live with that expectation and hope to honor Jesus well.